Hi, welcome to the Holy Fuck Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, author of Fuck Like a Goddess, creator of Radical Awakenings, transformational coach, and student of life. I'm here to stand with you asking questions about what is sacred and what is profane and the space between. Enjoy. Hello, hello. On today's podcast, I have an author whom I met way back in 2017, and her first memoir just came out, and it's so good. It's so good. It's like page turning good. Like, I told my partner, like, hey, can you just, like, I need to keep reading now. <laughs> I took, like, a whole Sunday afternoon in bed reading it, and um, and it was so educational, but also a page turner and it's called open and we talk all about it in this podcast rachel is so kind articulate um very peaceful i love the way she expresses herself in this very um compassionate articulate slow kind peaceful way so i hope you enjoy her presence as much as i did Hi, everybody. So today I have on the podcast author and writer, Rachel Krantz. Rachel just wrote a book called Open, which I have sitting next to me, and I am on page 166 of it, and I'm dying to know what happens next. <laughs> so hopefully on today's podcast, I'll get a little bit more intel about this. But uh, Rachel, really happy to have you here today. And um, just to reconnect with you, we met, was that maybe in like 2017? Yeah, like during the time I'm writing about in the book, I think you came to the house in LA where I was living and were on my then podcast. So it's really awesome for it to come full circle. Yeah, I love that. So you are one of the co-founders of Bustle, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that podcast we did, was that a Bustle podcast? It was, yeah. And I've since unfortunately had to like take it down to protect um, Adam, as I call him in the book, his anonymity. Uh -huh. um, just because I stupidly at the time would, you know, refer to him a lot and not using uh, the suit. So it's not, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a fun podcast and and hopefully soon I'll be relaunching a, a different version of it. So cool. What did, what did we talk about on that podcast? I was trying to remember, was it ayahuasca? I think it was okay. Yeah. That yeah. Was, that's interesting. It's like, I guess it's five years ago. We've probably right. both changed quite a bit since then. Yeah. I, I love that you just kind of revealed something that I think would support anyone out there who's a creator or writer as it just kind of like ping something in my heart, which is like, Oh, on my podcast, I was saying my ex-boyfriend's name or partner's name. And now I wrote a a memoir where I'm using a pseudonym for him. So I actually can't have that out there. Wow. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's taught me to refer to if I'm going to write about current partners to just use a pseudonym from the beginning and oh, avoid wow. that situation. And, um, obviously have their consent, which I did with him. Um, but yeah, just avoids a lot of hassle if you can, maybe not have a bunch of photos up on the internet and a bunch of, uh, yeah, their real name. Yeah. If you're going to write gonna a memoir, yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. Or if you're a memoir, memoir writer. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's a good one. I've, I've actually gotten in trouble in the past around that in my twenties, I wrote some articles and like, I didn't use my access names, but it was just, it got, it got messy. So, yeah. um, haven't done that in a while, but your book is inspiring in terms of a woman telling a really, really honest, um, story about her own life. I I'd love to hear what propelled you from even your early days of writing those kind of articles for bustle or wherever else you wrote that were like, you know, I did ABC. Cause I remember the time where those <laughs> were so fucking popular. Everyone yeah. was writing those. And, um, I'd love to hear how you got into your work. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, I think that, you know, I was at the forefront of all those, I tried X thing and here's what happened and was just writing a lot of personal essays and articles that had to be turned around in a day or hours. And, um, you know, some things that I'm still proud of, but mostly that I wish I had had more time and more feedback and context and now lives on the internet forever. So I think even then I knew I was kind of in that machine 
and needed to be for my career, but I, I wanted to be thinking and writing in a more in-depth way. Um, and of course, I'd always thought about writing a book one day, but when I was in my first non-monogamous relationship, I wrote a few articles about jealousy in an attempt to sort of process my struggles with it. Um, and then it wasn't super personal because I felt like so embarrassed of where I was at with it. I was struggling so much. It was more like reporting on, you know, what is jealousy and, you know, what are strategies to combat it and that sort of thing. And an agent approached me and was like, you should write a book about non-monogamy that's a blend of memoir and journalism. And I said, yeah, maybe someday, but like, I'm really bad at this and I don't even know if it's for me. I'm definitely not an expert. And she said, well, just start writing things down. And I was already keeping a detailed journal, but then that idea that maybe one day all these rapidly piling experiences, this, you know, going to my first sex parties, having my first threesomes, um, you know, coming into my queerness, uh, like having my first grapplings with jealousy, my first dom-sub relationship, the idea that I was sort of keeping track of that as a potential future thing I would be able to make sense of someday, I think was a sort of coping mechanism to feel like I had some sense of control over my own narrative and life. Um, and that one day, you know, I would own the story instead of these websites owned by men uh, owning whatever I wrote or, um, you know, whatever else, these narratives that were being written by my male partner about the direction I should be heading. It very much felt like he owned that as well. So it was this kind of attempt to take my power back. And then as the years went on, um, recording via audio uh, with his consent, with other people's consent, it became a way also to feel like I had some sort of record of what the truth was as the central relationship with Adam became more and more unhealthy and characterized by a lot of gaslighting. And he was saying, you're remembering things wrong. I didn't say that, you know, saying my emotions were not true um, or needed to be trained out of me that I think the recorder became a sort of witness. And as a woman, like living through me too, a sort of impulse of like, okay, I guess I better gather evidence because no uh -huh. one's going to believe me. And I'm certainly not going to be able to explain whatever this is unless I have the exact records of what are being said. Yeah. Wow. So was he also writing publicly about this at the same time? He was not. Um, okay. And he very much understood my impulse to. Um, he was also a writer and a, a psychologist studying the nature of sexual and, and romantic desire. So he was very interested in writing on these themes as well, but it was in a more academic. Um, okay. Got it. So the book is such an honest depiction of your journey, one woman's journey into non-monogamy, into a, a bit of a subdom relationship. And I felt like the vulnerability at which you um, described your emotional experience was really, really delicious to me because I've read and have listened to tons of podcasts about non-monogamy and polyamory and ethical non-monogamy and ethical slut and all this, but I didn't, I hadn't ever felt the deep pain and like the part where like you're like on the bathroom floor hitting yourself. Like I know that feeling when the insides, your emotions are so, um, you know, activated and full and overflowing that like something has to get them out. And that experience to have that experience reading about this, whether it's non-monogamy or whether you said you, you were becoming a nun or you're like, you know, training to run <laughs> to training to run a marathon, like maybe you'd be having a similar emotional experience, but the fact that you revealed that level of vulnerability was, um, compelled me to keep breathing, reading because I, I was really, I felt an, you know, a heart and a feeling and emotional connection to you. So in writing this book, how, how did you approach the process of revealing some of your darknesses, weaknesses, you know, mental health issues? Like how, how did you approach that process. Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, because that's exactly what I'm hoping people will feel is like 
oh God, thank God she admitted that thing. I thought, you know, I'm the only one who feels or, or that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, for me, on a certain level, it does come naturally in that I seem to be a sort of uh, compulsively honest person a lot of the times. Like I, I kind of just, my tendency is to go there and to reveal that just because I've seen over my career how that continues to probably be like the most helpful thing I can do um, in my writing. So I guess I was sort of driven by a, a sense of purpose around that and just knowing my own privileges, of which there are so many that make it easier for me to go there as someone who's, you know, maybe my career will be ultimately negative, negatively impacted by admitting all these things, but at least I have the shot that it could help my career or at least maintain it. And so many other people could legally lose their jobs for being out as not just non-monogamous, but sexual beings even. Um, And, you know, the fact that I'm white and thin and all these other things that may be less likely that I'm going to be as severely harassed or, or any of these things. Um, Those sort of drove me again to sort of, help open up the conversation to do my part, to be as honest as possible. Other than that, I think that I just sort of erred on going there as much as possible in the initial writing and then examining afterwards using, um, well, I've found the principles of right speech in Buddhism to be very useful. And that's, is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? Is it necessary? And all those things can get quite subtle because sometimes something is true, but when you examine it further, it's not, it's not really necessary in the larger sense, or it's a, has an air of slight pettiness to it, or it's just like funny, but it's funny for, you know, at someone else's expense. So I, I tried to use that as the guiding principle of when I wasn't quite sure do I reveal this uh, or not, you know, to apply that rubric. Um, I also had a lot of support of friends and community and uh, Kathy Labriola, my counselor, who's in the book, who's a non-monogamous expert. And I call her my real life fairy godmother. She continues to be a real guiding light for me, um, as well as the monk you meet at the end of the book, a Buddhist monk named Tashinima who um, I met very much towards the end of this story, but who's continued to be a real ethical advisor for me. So I think having those Mm. outside voices of when I would very much have those specific questions of like, should I reveal this? Or is this, you know, ethical to to reveal this um, when it concerns other people that having those other touchstones was also very important. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, the question that I have is like, are you still non-monogamous? Like, yeah. Can you reveal that? Yeah, I can reveal that. I I am still non-monogamous. And I think that some people, when they see, you know, how badly some of the things in the story turn out, that might seem shocking of like, why would you do that? But I think that also, as you go on the journey with me, it makes sense by the end of the book, how you know, a lot of the book is about how things that we think are, are binary or seemingly opposing often are not. And both things can be true at the same time. So it can be true that you have an experience where non-monogamy is used, uh, by a man sometimes as a form of more control or coercion or pushing you to do things you're not comfortable with at the same time that you're seeing me becoming more liberated in terms of my conceptions of what my desires are allowed to be, the narratives I'm allowed to write for my life. Um, Both those things are happening in the story at the same time. I'm getting increasingly more entrapped and in some ways more liberated. And so I think when I emerge from that, you get a sort of hint of where I've ended up at now of seeing through deep introspection, a lot of which was also the process of writing this book, what do I want to keep with me and what do I want to leave behind? And, Mm -hmm. you know, just like any 
relationship, we hopefully leave with lessons of, okay, I learned like that's not, that's not good for me or that's not going to work. Um, that mm. leads to suffering, but also I learned, I really like this and and that, and maybe I don't have to disavow everything about that person just because I'm no longer with them, but, you know, offer a deep bow of gratitude for everything they, they taught me. Um, mm. And that's very much how I feel um, like a deep sense of gratitude for this whole journey, even the parts of it that were very rough, because I think it helped teach me um, where I wanted to go explore next. Mm-hmm. Wow. Beautiful. Um, you mentioned Tashi the monk, and you mentioned also some, sounds like some Buddhist study as you um, were just speaking about this book, this relationship, essentially being a woman who was not non-monogamous and then meeting a partner, um, falling in love and entering into non-monogamous, not only relationship, but culture, community, um, exploration. It feels like a spiritual practice, you know, a way to face um, jealousy, fear, childhood, tendencies or attachment wounding, um, kind of the list just goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like, uh, with the right, perhaps right is the wrong word, but with, um, some parameters that it could be a deep spiritual practice. So I'm, I'm curious at a certain point in your journey, did you have a turning point where you were able to see, wow, this is actually growing me, evolving me, um, healing me. I'm not sure what the word you would choose, but as a human. Yeah. I mean, I think I felt that relatively early on as much as I was struggling and it was a lot of what propelled me to keep going besides wanting to be with Adam and knowing this was kind of what he required, um, that it was really, uh, you know, this idea of spiritual growth um, through combating jealousy, because it was just such a humbling experience to have for the first time where like, I really could not control my physiological response. You know, I'd had anxiety before or moments of that, but never like a prolonged, profound, egoic discomfort that I was choosing to sit with again and again. And, you know, I, I think that every time it got deeper, the closest, comparison I had was like solo psychedelic experiences where you're really just like, it's just you in the cave (laughs) and you're in it. And it felt like a way of unearthing all these childhood wounds. I didn't know I had beliefs that I didn't know I had deep seated insecurities and trying to decondition them. Um, on top of that, Adam very much introduced Buddhist thought early on, which I was somewhat familiar with, but I think didn't really have a a lot of understanding around and these concepts of non-attachment as a sort of argument for why, you know, true love should not foster um, attachment and you shouldn't be grasping and trying to control someone else. And it wasn't until later where you see me, um, you know, going on the retreat, meeting Tashi, the monk, and beginning to really examine and interrogate those things for myself more than just kind of taking Adam's word for it, that I learned more about how I was sort of, um, you know, in some ways on the right track, in some ways uh, taking it to a more masochistic place than was actually something Buddhism would recommend. Um, And also the distinctions of non-attachment you know, is not the same thing as dissociation or spiritual bypassing or saying you're just going to make yourself okay with any situation because you're not going to be attached about it or everything's impermanent. That, you know, if you don't really have a clarity that I try to give the readers to learn from my mistakes of what these concepts actually mean, they can become a little bit dangerous as ways to um, convince yourself to stay in situations that are actually harmful. Mm. Yeah. 
one thing I really appreciate in the book is how throughout the book, you use the technique of doing these cute little footnotes um, that really provide a lot of deeper context. And I, I was curious from a writer's perspective, um, why they weren't just integrated into the text. Just, I know that's a writer's choice. So that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is what led you to kind of give more explanation? Because a lot of those, those footnotes are almost as if, if this could be um, interpreted in a variety of different ways, if there's any ambiguity in it, let me give you a little bit more context, a little bit more explanation. Let me cite where this idea first came from way back in the day. Let me cite how this impacts me racially as a white woman versus someone else. Like you're so thorough in that journey. And so I'm curious from the, the writer's perspective and also just like the, um, the, the form perspective in terms of having them the bottom. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, one reason was just I did not have enough space. So, yeah. you know, I did try to work in a lot more of it in the first draft. And my editor was like, this is too long. People don't read books that are much over 300 pages anymore. So, you know, we're gonna have to cut a lot of this. And also, what about the idea of footnotes as a way to kind of fit more into a similar amount of pages? So part of mm -hmm. it really was, um, I guess the current market's attention span driving yeah, it. Yeah. I think also my background in digital journalism had something to do with it and that some of the footnotes function almost like hyperlinks would. Of right. where, you know, I'm making certain claims, but I want people to know that there's actual research backing this up that, that I did and other people have done. Um, and, you know, I've heard the expression, I'm forgetting exactly who it's attributed to now. I'll have to look back and remember, but... Basically, the, the gist of it is like if you're writing about any topic that's like marginalized, you better like cite the hell out of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a way to give more context, more legitimacy, um, I think it was important to me to sort of view, have the story read hopefully in a very like page turning way where there is some of that context woven in but that mostly it would read narrative, but at the same time that you're not just like, oh, watching a hot mess without any potential tools to see how might you learn from this, learn from my mistakes. And so I kind of viewed myself as the fable or the psychological case study. And you have all these psychologists or researchers or BDSM experts, you know, commenting in the footnotes throughout of like, okay, like this is a common mistake. Here's, you know, why this is indicative of, um, you know, a problem you might encounter. Here's a hotline you might call if you think you're in this situation. Here's a way to figure out what your boundaries are to just kind of think yeah. back on where were some of the points where I was most um, stuck or feeling like I needed some guidance and to try to really have those be moments where that context or that advice comes in. Um, I think also uh, in terms of just desires to have that be contextualized a little was important as well because I just realized, you know, there's so much shame that people have around their own difficulties with long-term monogamy, around their fantasies, all, all this stuff. And so like citing, actually, like this is quite common and like these things I'm exploring, like it's not it's so weird that it might be turning you on to read about them right now. In fact, like that's quite, quite statistically normal that it was also a way to kind of let the reader understand their own response to what they're reading and to hopefully feel less shame um, because they're learning more about how this is not so abnormal. Yeah. I love that. I think that everyone listening should begin as an exercise to cite in their social media. Like, so if you're going to post something and you are somehow inspired by the ideas of a certain person or a certain tradition or a certain art or song that you either write it in the caption or you put like a slide like that says like, Hey, this was inspired by da 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 because yeah. with the internet, <laughs> like with social media, 
it's it, seeing your book be so conscious and aware of not only citing like your influences or where this came from or how it's impacted certain peoples or um, that it may be something that's actually way more normal than we think. Um, like that was, that just felt so, um, so, so liberating. And it also just called to the attention, all of the moments where people are not doing that. Everything is like very willy nilly, <laughs> just kind of strewn about on the internet. And I want to just yep. see if I, I think I, I, um, I have one that I, I wanted to just read. So I think, especially for creators out there, like, okay, I'm going to read this one because I found it to be really inspiring. And so this is a footnote from page 63. And it says, it says in tiny little cute print, <laughs> well, and it's an asterisk that the top, it says, um, I found Liam shortly after John Smith. He was holding a small chainsaw and looking askance like you do when you're white and ridiculously handsome. And then the asterisk at the bottom says, if you're notice, if you're noticing, I keep mentioning everyone's race, it's likely because white writers often name the race of people of color, only name the race of people of color in their books, thereby making white people the standard default by omission and reinforcing white supremacy. And Matthew Salise, I'm not sure how to say his last name, yeah. book, Craft in the Real World, he suggests that if you name any major character's race and or ethnicity, as I have, by making making clear both Adam and I are white and Jewish, it's best practice to keep clear every major character's race. So that is what I have tried to do throughout for every major character, either outright naming their race or making it clearly imp implied through context. Matthew Celeste's Craft in the Real World, New York Catapult 2021. So that, like, those, that, I just thought that was brilliant. I thought that was great. I thought it was wonderful. I think everyone needs to start um, extra footnoting. And not because, <laughs> not because the, the feeling in the book wasn't like that you were, you were like feeling guilty and trying to like cover your ass, you know, but it actually was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little extra care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that was very important to me because yeah. as a sort of learning from my mistakes at Bustle where I didn't, I wasn't doing that work. Um, and what I was just then? turning out stuff. And, you know, I, I, I made mistakes. I, I did things like just kind of calling out my privilege without really contextualizing it and thinking that was enough of being like, oh, look, I only, you know, got away with this because I'm white and then like moving on rather than being in this book, I much more try to contextualize it and then also often offer like action items or ideas of proactively what you can do to be actively anti-racist in these moments where I'm pointing out my own privilege. So sort of um, also just getting way more uh, perspectives. So not mm -hmm. only reading a lot more widely from other people's perspectives that are not just, you know, similar to my own, but also having a lot of early readers and advisors on the book, um, some of whom I hired as sensitivity readers to really, you know, read early drafts and point out those moments that I might be blind to because of uh, my privilege and, and so, or, or things that they felt excluded from or to make sure I'm phrasing things in a way that as many people as possible are going to feel seen and included. And like this book is also for them, even given the limitations of um, my identities. So that was just very important to me to, to do that work. Um, and to also, yeah, I mean, what's made me happy is that a lot of people reading the book say they are finding so many ideas of other books they want to read. And just because I did so much reading over this time period, I, I love that idea of like, you can get these snippets of, oh, okay, I like that quote from craft in the real world. And if I'm a writer, sounds like I should read this book to find out more about how privilege plays out in the ways we tell stories mm -hmm. and to be more actively anti-racist just in these small decisions I make as a writer um, or lots of other books on all kinds of topics are, are cited throughout that I hope, you know, help bring people to other books that have helped me. Yeah. It's very, it's like a, it's a generous act, you know, and I hope that that generous act does become something that's more, um, quote unquote, normal or it's commonplace, but for now it feels generous. Um, 
So earlier you mentioned something, you didn't say the words directly, but um, about your digital footprint. And I found that that was an interesting point in the book where you kind of mentioned like you did today um, when you were working for Bustle and you're just turning and burning, writing out fast articles, putting them on the internet, using your life as material. And that now that digital footprint lives like kind of, you know, in perpetuity until who knows. Uh, what is that like for you now? And what, um, you know, what changes have you made in terms of how you share yourself publicly? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel a sense of regret about a lot of things that live online and like a wish I could. Will you give us some examples uh, <laughs> that, that don't trigger you too much? <laughs> I mean, I think just anything where it's like I... Well, like we talked about where I called out my privilege, but didn't contextualize it sufficiently Um, or things where I feel like I had a little more of a tone of like, I've figured it out now because I felt like I had in that moment. Whereas I think now I'm much more humble about like, this is where I'm at right now. And it's always going to be evolving and changing and what you're reading is just frozen in time at this moment as best as I can explain it. Um, I guess that a lot of it has been a gift though, in that I feel like, okay, you know, if that, if there's all these things I'm embarrassed of and things I'm proud of, then I've already been living life on the record. So I can just keep doing that and keep learning on the record, how to do better and be an example of someone hopefully like learning and growing from mistakes or from someone who's evolving and who's allowed to change uh, with increasing humility. Um, And I hope that that in itself can be of some value. Um, I guess that motivates me. And I guess in terms of what I post online now, I just, like I said, like I try to be much more conscious of getting other perspectives, slowing down, addressing things with humility, um, as well as the concept that Tashi taught me of paying attention to the ways in which we absolutize a lot in language of best, worst, you know, amazing, terrible, and just kind of like trying to keep it a little more in the middle um, and noticing just those instincts to, to generalize, say only or, or always or whatever. And just noticing that both in my everyday speech has been incredibly helpful, but also in my writing um, to, again, just really like think about those words before I say them and to, yeah, just avoid that kind of dramatization or absolutizing or things that might end up alienating or excluding unnecessarily because you're trying to, you know, be more compelling by making this very extreme case or making your point in an extreme way and just trying to move more towards honesty and vulnerability and trusting that that in the end is a, is just a better way to live and communicate. And also because of that actually does resonate more deeply because we're in this world where everyone's yelling at the top of their lungs. Oh, there, I just did it again. Everyone. So many people are yelling at the top of their lungs, not everyone. And to be someone who's able to slow down and think and maybe not be so extreme in all my conclusions in itself is a privilege and a potentially radical act. Okay, so I just want to take a quick break from the episode to share about one of my affiliate partners, Chakrups, the original crystal sex toy company. You may have seen me share about them on Instagram or in the press because I have because I love them. (laughs) Vanessa Cuccia, who's the founder of the company, and she was also a guest on this podcast in episode six. She really pioneered the idea of using crystals for heightened sexual and spiritual intimacy. Each chakra is handcrafted from 100% natural crystal, and they're completely body safe. And the store carries a wide array of products that infuse your energetic field with the subtle energy that the crystal of your chakra holds. Using a chakra over time can help build sensitivity and reawaken subtle sensations within your body. Yay! (laughs) I have personally used them for years, and I love their products. 
And over the last few years, I've recommended them to many clients and survivors of sexual trauma, not only for exploring their self-pleasure, but for healing, releasing blockages, feelings held in the body, and rebuilding and reawakening their relationship to sexuality and sensuality over time. And also they are these beautiful objects which you can put like on an altar in some way in your home to really um, embrace them. So use the link in the show notes and the code is Love at checkout to receive a 10% discount in this store. Big love and enjoy. Yeah, majorly. I'm wondering if with that increased level of awareness and humility and pacing, um, different pacing, um, if it's less popular to people, you know, like if people are less compelled, then then it's like not buying into and Mm -hmm. not active. It's not pushing the buttons in people's nervous systems that are used to being pushed. And therefore it maybe is less, I don't know, publicly mainstream popular to speak, carry oneself in that way. Like what's your experience with that has um, in comparison, the way that you wrote for bustle, which I imagine was a little bit more like kind of clickbait, like, (gasps) And, and then the way you're speaking now, which feels like it's not about that at all. It's about something different. Has that shifted the way people have received you and the amount of people and the amount of press or, you know, kind of like input back? Mm. I do think the algorithms, I mean, we know are set up to promote that kind of combative controversy of things, you know, that they talk about, like when on Facebook, the algorithm is such that like the more something gets you know, argued on, like the more it's going to show up high in the feed. So unfortunately, they really have set up a system where like it encourages combativeness or just being as extreme in your opinions as possible, because that's going to elicit the most reaction. Um, I mean, I've just found like for me in terms of what feels sustainable and not spiritually exhausting as much as to like act publicly more how I would actually, you know, want to make it in line with my values. And so even if that ultimately results in less followers, I'm okay with that because I don't, I'm not interested in writing a super honest book only to, you know, have some dishonest or more extremist representation of myself online that would defeat the whole purpose. Um, I have noticed, you know, that taking that track so far, I mean, there's been a lot of interest and coverage, so I'm very heartened by that. Um, and I would also say a lot, a lot more love coming my way than ever before. I mean, I was, I was lucky that with Bustle, I did get some of those messages sometimes and they really kept me going of like, thank you, I feel seen. But, you know, the book's only been out two weeks, not even, and I'm getting a lot more of those messages. And I think that probably, well, part of that is just, it's a, it's a longer journey here going on with me. So it's going to be more meaningful. Yeah. Um, but it's also that I've made myself as vulnerable as possible in a way I never did before. And so that moves people and that makes them feel I think more free to return the generosity or the love um, because they feel like someone's really made themselves vulnerable with them and, and given them this act of, of love of trying to just connect with them in that way. So yeah, I'm, I'm noticing a lot more beautiful reciprocity where the more vulnerable I make myself, the more that vulnerability and kindness is, is returned back. Yeah. That's great to hear. And I agree with you. It's, it's like, you know, it, the, the, the waves and the way people are most compelled online or not, or in, in general, like the waves of kind of the zeitgeist 
will continue on. And like, we're not meant to sort of like contort ourselves around those weaves to, we're just meant to sort of stay and we may go in and out of style or in and out of often on trend and so be it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think I have a, a bit of a parallel where when I was doing stuff for vice and I did my web show and I, you know, did that server piece for vice, which, you know, one of the things that will be on the internet forever, you know, that if, if I have children one day, they'll be like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, maybe by then things will be different. Maybe I'll, it'll be down, but I don't think so, you know, but and that that exists out there sort of floating around and that like millions of people have watched it. And at the time that was like the best I could do. I was going through my Saturn's return and I was in a slightly <laughs> abusive relationship yeah. and, um, you know, smoking a lot of cigarettes and also meditating, going to ayahuasca, which is like a hot mess. Like, just like you were a bit of a hot mess in yours, yep. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's on the internet, you know? Yep. So it's like, okay. And when I wrote my book with Sounds True, um, I felt like, oh, I have this opportunity to just be me. And there's no, there's no sort of like, you know, extra glamorizing or, um, you know, sensationalizing. Like this is just actually me. And I'm, and I've also received such, such beautiful feedback from that um, over, I mean, book's been out for a year and a half and still like daily I get messages and, um, you know, and there's, and yet there's this stark t contrast to like the level of artfulness or, or vulnerability or um, self kind of uh, the self portraying, like the way I portrayed myself back then, as opposed to now so different, you know, mm -hmm. like maybe my hair is similar and I still like to wear red lipstick, but uh, I mean, a lot has changed. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of being a public person and uh, you know, what compelled you from the beginning to say, you know what, like, this is who I am that I want to share myself with the world and reveal the depths of who I am. Mm. I think that writing first person journalism has kind of always been my default setting in terms of the way I just seem to love to write. Like even when I was a kid, I was writing first person accounts of, you know, what I did with my best friend or, or a trip we took. So I think I've always just kind of experienced the world that way and been interested in that form as a way of investigating where I fit in the world and in so doing, helping others examine those questions and just feeling a sense of kinship of if I follow what journeys, what questions am I most interested in having um, or answering that like that's going to be trusting that that will be useful to other people, like that I'm never alone in these desires or these questions. And so turning it into immersion journalism rather than just straight memoir for me is a way to learn more. Mm -hmm. Um, and to also just like have more conversations with people I want to talk to, because if you're reporting a story or you're, you know, recording an interview, all of a sudden you just get to have these really in-depth conversations, you know, you know, like this one that you wouldn't maybe have otherwise and get to talk to people in an in-depth way you wouldn't normally get to. And that's just always been very motivating to me because I, I have a lot of questions and I am an emotional explorer. And so I think, yeah, writing about it is how I both motivate myself to be as brave as I want to be, um, to explore as much as I want to explore. And also then how I make sense of it afterwards and try to turn the experience into something that can be integrated for myself, but then also for others so that it becomes about more than just me, because that's the thing, even though it's very self-centered work in certain ways to write about yourself, for me, it's also really motivated just as much or more by how can this be useful to other people? And I think if I was just thinking about myself, it would get pretty miserable and pointless pretty quickly. So it's, it's actually, yeah, that question of, um, yeah. How, like we were saying, how can I help others feel less shame, interrogate yeah. these questions, live vicariously 
through my journey. Yeah. And, and feel less alone, I think, mm-hmm. in their experiences. I think you said that earlier. And I agree on the outside. Someone's saying, I can't, play. why is she always writing about herself? I don't know if someone's saying that, but, <laughs> but you know, if, if someone were asking that in that way, like, God, wow, she's just like writing all about herself for 15 years or however many <laughs> years. But, but if you're, but at the heart of it, it's offering the most deep and precious and disgusting and you know, beautiful experiences of my human in as an offering to you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it feels actually more selfless because there's, I have to smatter my pride and my ego. I have to show you my dirty panties and like, you know, no, no pun intended for your book or anything. Like that. <laughs> it's like a lot of panty dropping in the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's, it's a vulnerable and it's a scary and it's a tender offering. And I think everyone who does write from their experiences and from their heart and the revealing of not only the good parts of oneself, um, knows, well, yeah, this is actually requires a lot of selflessness because if I were trying to preserve my face here, I would not be telling you, Mm -hmm. um, the depths of this truth because it's not always pretty. I mean, most of the time it's not pretty. Like the human experience is very, very multidimensional. And, um, I think the difference of a writer who's just out there kind of sharing the top layer and like creating some sort of a, like, oh, I'm going to offer this of service, like the top layer, my good layer is like, to me, that's very uninteresting. And I want to learn from writers, teachers, um, activists, poets, whomever, who reveal their humanity mm-hmm. and that they're actually willing to sacrifice looking good or having it together or any of that in order to, um, in order to invite me into my humanness, to my grief, to my confusion. And then we're, we're in a transformational process together. And, and to me, that's just like, that's, a, that's the spot I want to live as, as an artist, a writer, a teacher, or facilitator, whatever the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's vulnerable. It's scary. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And thank you for saying that because that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and it does require a lot of vulnerability and it is meant as an offering, but, you know, I think it's a total dance, like saying that I don't want to also be like, therefore there's no ego involved in this. No, but of course there feels is. Of delicious. It feels yeah. delicious to yeah. write. Yeah, and yeah. so I think it's a really interesting thing to watch as well, like yeah. in the process of the book coming out and the the reactions to it and how yeah. how I'll see, you know, uh, there's that idea of the, the worldly wins, again, in Buddhism of um, one of them is praise versus criticism or censure. Yeah. And the idea that we're trying to avoid criticism and garner praise and that the more we're sort of driven by either, you know, the fear of the criticism or the desire for praise, the more we'll suffer. So it's like, you know, the more you're driven by the praise, the more the criticism is going to probably get to you. Yeah. So it's just been really interesting to continue learning those lessons on such a public and extreme scale of, you know, literally people publicly critiquing this piece of my heart slash brain slash pussy that I've basically like put on a platter for people and made as vulnerable as possible. And to watch what it feels like to see their reaction, either positive or negative or something in between and to work with that and to try to learn from it and, and to see, Oh, okay. I, I thought this wasn't about ego here, but here it is again. And, and I, I definitely just recognize the irony and, you know, all my conversations with Tashi, that monk of like, okay, in so many ways underneath everything, I'm driven by this desire to more and more feel a sense of rest in my life of presence of feeling like I don't have to perform anything or anticipate anything. And that I can just be in the moment and, and be there and that's okay. And, uh, and that I know a lot of that comes from a sense of interconnectedness and acceptance of impermanence, 
um, a dissolving of ego so that you don't have this sense that you're just the protagonist of life and everything is happening around you, that that's going to always lead to a protecting of that ego. So it's so interesting to see myself working on things in that direction and even having the book being a really important part of that journey and process at the same time that it's so ironic and so much antithetical to that, right? Because I'm literally like writing about Rachel, quote unquote, and, you know, like solidifying this narrative and creating this thing of me that's going to be public or critiqued. Um, So it's very, it's very interesting for me to navigate all those contradictions. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting conversation in general when it comes to some Eastern and potentially more patriarchal spiritual traditions. And then when it comes to the journey of an artist and, you know, it's like looking from like a bit of like a depth psychology lens or like a mythopoetic lens it's very different than the the energy of of approaching oneself or one's life or one's artistry through a buddhist lens you know and right. and i and it can be of course like and from a buddhist lens it's like um i'm putting this out there i i i really do want to get written about in press like i want to get I want people to love it. I want to get praise. I want to get a claim. I want to get another book deal. I want, I want more, more, mm-hmm. more. And it's like craving, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And then from the journey of an artist, it's like if you were looking at like a heroine's journey or a hero's journey of like, wow, I fought and I've worked so hard and I like, you know, worked my babysitting jobs and like I wrote all those free articles. And then like, you know, I, I, cooked food for some rich guys as their, you know, personal cute chef. And then like, I was in debt and then like, oh my God, now I have a book deal and be and like, I get to do this. Like, wow. I've like fought the ops. I mean, I think you actually referenced the, the hero's journey, didn't you? And the mm-hmm. hero. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and now the journey of my artist is like, you know, bursting free into a new level. And then maybe I'll let it all go, but I can enjoy this moment of how much, um, how much travail and trials and tribulations I've come through to get here. So it's like, it is again, like holding multiple truths, like, mm-hmm. and can I not be attached to it? And like, there is this poet, Frank LaRue Owen, who's a, a Zen Buddhist poet who we read a lot here at our house. And he has a poem and in it, he, he says something about biting honey covered hooks. And like, they're both honey covered hooks. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the more, 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 or the like, oh, I don't really like give a fuck or like, it's just, it's just noticing all of it, I think. And also, I hope that you can um, allow for the celebration of this moment for you because it's a huge deal writing a book. It takes a lot of energy and it's, yes. it takes a lot of Thank fighting you. your own demons. And Thank you. Um, yeah, and the importance of rejoicing. You know, I've just really appreciated that my current partner like reminds me to rejoice and take breaks to to just celebrate exactly yeah. what you just said and and to let those wonderful moments seep in so that you're not just always working towards the next thing because i think the more success i've had the more i realize yeah there's no end to it there's you can no just end. Lay, there's no point you're going to reach where you're like oh now i've done the thing and i can rest you know it's really it's on you to cultivate that sense of rest within yourself. That's not so determined by external factors um, mm-hmm. and conditions. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to navigate. I mean, one thing again, that I've, I've asked the monk about this and he said, I'm like, isn't this incredibly like counterproductive to like try to be letting go of my ego through writing a book about myself. And he's like, well, Not really, because in constructing the story, you have this firsthand experience and knowledge of seeing how this is just a story and how that Rachel is not you. And, you know, it's it's a part of you that happened in the past and that even writing about it now is an impermanent experience and wherever it gets frozen is still in the past, right? So it's, it is this kind of witnessing of um, mm-hmm. these, like the story of your life or the story of yourself is a narrative you're constructing and you can hold on to that loosely or tightly. You can use that for your own benefit or others' benefits. You can whatever, but 
you know, he'll just say to me, just remind yourself, like, this is not me. This is not myself. This is not mine. Yeah. And, And that's helpful as well of, you know, of course, there's a degree of, yes, it is me, but it's like in the ultimate dimension. It's not, it's not really anything solid that's mine to hold. It's now this offering that I've put forward into the world. And when they, when someone reads it, it becomes theirs um, because only they are going to have that experience with it. And, and it, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess it belongs to no one and everyone. Very meta too. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I love that aspect of giving away one story. I think about that too. I'm like, I'm no longer this person and I'm going to gift you this and I'm letting it go. And I, you know, by the time my book came out, I was like, oh, I'm not even in that person anymore. Like, I don't even want to talk about this book because I don't, I'm so over this phase of my life. And then I got over that, which was another attachment, right? To the book needing to represent who I am now. So then I like, okay, great. I can still stand by this book, even though I've evolved quickly beyond this phase of my own, you Mm -hmm. know, evolution. And now I can feel like I'm able to um, have a non- attached like really deep love for the for the book and what I offer even though like I'm feel like oh yeah that's old material you know (laughs) um well we didn't talk very much and I want to we'll just finish off with just we didn't talk very much about like the salacious part of the book (laughs) and I suppose that kind of goes along with our conversation here we're we're talking for from a bit more of like a you intellectual and um, spiritual level about this like really sexy book and (laughs) really fun book actually like I felt like a lot of fun and I, I really do feel the page turner part of it, which is like, I read 166 pages of it yesterday. I'm a fast reader. Um, and so, but I didn't get to finish it. And I'm like excited to finish it. Cause I oh, want to know what you. happens. Um, so like it, in a nutshell, what are your takeaways from, from a journey of learning about non-monogamy coming into your queerness, being in a, um, uh, you know, it's subdom kind of a relationship, like, um, and, and maybe from like a more a, a sexual or sensual perspective, like what mm-hmm. were some of those takeaways? So, so someone who's listening can really feel, Ooh, like, all right, I want to get into that journey with her. Mm, thanks for asking. Um, I would say one of my main takeaways is just that I'm far more fluid and chameleon like than I realized that, um, a lot of what was is remains exciting to me or was exciting to me is based more in connection, novelty, variety, um, being desired, uh, feeling the other person or people elicit desire in me. And that given that I was able to enjoy being a sub, being a dom, being with people of all genders, being, you know, exploring other kinks, being in you know, having group sex, having just solos, whatever, like that it was more about the psychological experience behind it. Um, And just that there was so much fluidity that I think I was before this journey thinking I had to put a label on, or I had to kind of like figure out, you know, what, what are you, or how do you identify or all these things. And And I I do find just calling myself bisexual now has been helpful just in my own journey. But I also hold these terms pretty lightly at the same time in the same way of like, yeah, all these labels are kind of potentially fluid and and who knows. Um, So that's one thing. And just feeling a lot less shame around any of it, around like more of just a friendly curiosity of like, oh, okay, I didn't know I like that. Or I wonder what else is out there or or less shame around why are you greedy? Why do you want so much, you know, and more of just like, oh, isn't that nice? You love everyone, (laughs) you know, like um, kind of figuring out how to, how to work with that going forward, given that I'm potentially this stereotype in some ways of the much feared insatiable you know oversexed woman but that comes up against um having feelings having restraints on my time 
And so how do I, you know, navigate continuing to want to explore all of it as a non-monogamous woman, but also knowing that I don't want it to be at the expense of forming deep long-term bonds or making, you know, partners feel safe or um, kind of spreading myself too thin and just kind of knowing it's going to be a, a dance of, of navigating those things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think I also noticed just how linear a story we have around sex often is and how much in my previously only sleeping with men, I was following that sort of very much hero's journey, linear narrative of like, you know, you're going to reach a climax of a certain point, usually penetrative sex, orgasm, and then you come down and it's over. Whereas once I was having more experiences with women and just also, I don't know, more, less orgasm-centric experiences as well, that I was like, oh, like, sex is a lot more than that, obviously. And, And just noticing in myself, where do I still fall into those scripts, that pressure that's been internalized for so long of feeling like, you know, I have to come or I have to come in a certain amount of time or a certain way and um, trying to just continue to let go of that sort of capitalist, you know, patriarchal mentality around pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I'm curious, like with that journey, Do you feel like that time, because I don't want to project my idea onto you. Do you feel like that time, let me ask you, was a particular deep phase of exploration and now you're in more of an integrated phase around your sexuality or are you still just as kind of active and experimental and exploratory as you were during the book? Um, I would say I'm externally not as... (laughs) Uh, exploring as much. I mean, part of that has just been COVID and yeah. it not being, Yeah. I I mean, I do know some non-monogamous people who are like not slowing down. They were still doing it for me. Like until the vaccine came out, I was like, no, I'm going to be physically monogamous with my partner. But I still found emotionally, I was not, I was still forming an intense connection with someone else crushes on other people. So that was kind of validating of like, yeah, this is who you, this is how I roll, but also I can physically put that aside and learn a lot from staying in one place or being physically monogamous for periods when that's appropriate. Um, And yeah, I think I have a little, there's a little less, novelty in some of the experiences for me, just because I did, you know, I did go to the swingers resorts and have group sex and have all these things that I'm like, okay, I kind of get what that is. And I know for me now, not to say I'll never be interested in that again, but it's less appealing than it used to be because I know that emotional connection is what really does it for me. Um, And so I think the way I'm exploring now is much more, kind of a, an integrated polyamorous phase of like, okay, how am I going to explore having multiple meaningful attachments and learning to navigate that, not just with the other partners, but in terms of in myself, that balance of compartmentalizing while remaining open, of not falling into a mentality of, you know, while I'm with one person, I'm missing the other, or thinking you know, even though I'm loving multiple people, that there's this part of me because of how I've been socialized that's still viewing them as in competition or like I have to like choose one or something in the end. So I think, yeah, the exploration is more internal and just noticing how even as I've let go of certain things, so much of it is still an internal narrative that I have to work to continue to decondition. Yeah. It seems like a real practice and awareness and, and kind of taking that back to the the Buddhists. It's like just noticing where's my mind going? What are those old stories or beliefs that it wants to hook into? You know, Mm -hmm. what would it take for me not to hook in that moment? Is it a breath? Is it a pause? You know, I think that I'm currently in a monogamous relationship 
and maybe the most, the first real adult kind of monogamous relationship. So that's actually my edge right now. It's like creating a lasting bond as a grown woman who I haven't created a lasting bond with someone. And I notice my awareness, you know, going to old thought patterns at times. And it's a practice to not go there, to not, or, or I would say not to not go there. But it's like to not choose those thought patterns, you know, mm-hmm. the well, the well, like the groove that's um, just like easy to go into, whether it's the competition, whether it's, uh, mine is would be like I'm better off alone. Like I'm just like a like an only child. Like yep, strong on my own. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like wait, you want to help me? You want to let me? Yeah, get away from me. <laughs> so, but the 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 deep spiritual practice is you know for me it's like letting my awareness come into a new place of like okay I can receive and I can be independent. You know mm-hmm. and I can. Um, and I think it's interesting to choose, you know, like the, that we all choose the different, our different edges of practice in life. And like non-monogamy is someone's edge and maybe it'll be your edge for this whole life. Maybe it'll be your edge for 10 years. Maybe someone else's mm-hmm. edge is around, um, you know, kink or someone else's edge is around veganism or um, who knows? Like we all have these areas of practice, you know, these areas that actually bring different parts of us alive that um need a little bit of time love um you know massaging like clarity the the sort of clarity all of that so um i loved reading about it in your book and just i feel yeah that that um for everyone listening it's this book is not just for people that are interested in non-monogamy. Like I said, I'm in a monogamous relationship right now and I really enjoy the book. Um, I enjoy the storytelling and the dynamics. So, um, you know, don't be afraid if you're like, Oh, I'm not into open relationship. You don't have to be into open relationships to read the book. Um, it's really about a woman's sexual, spiritual, emotional journey. um, Exactly. In the container of that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. It's nice to reconnect you. with you and yes, they're just wishing you the best for this process with the book and um for everything in life that, that you've got going on right now thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you so much for listening to today's podcast for more 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 follow me on ig at alexandra roxo and you can get on my mailing list where i send poems practices rituals links to upcoming retreats and events and all kinds of goodies And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review, give us a five-star rating, all that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.